WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new image series Torrent, as well as the uh, Marvel Star Wars comics Han Solo and Chewbacca and Jabba's Palace, and the upcoming Star Trek Echoes for IDW. It's Mark Guggenheim. Welcome, Mark. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. So, uh, first time guest question, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading? Ooh, like when I was growing up, you mean? Sure, yep. Um, well, like one of my earliest memories was like actually flipping through uh, the pages of a Superman comic book before I could read and just looking at the pictures. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I, I kind of started out as a DC guy, um, you know, reading, I, I had a neighbor who like gave me like old issues of world's finest and Superman and Batman. So that was sort of my, my entry. And then when I was like, I don't know, like I forget, like, you know, eight years old or something, uh, I discovered pocketbooks, which is this publishing company would sell these paperback editions of classic Marvel stories. Like, the you know the original Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, Spider Man, the Stan Lee, Jim Kirby, Fantastic Four, and uh, you know the Incredible Hulk and Doctor Strange, and that was that was actually my real introduction to Marvel. Um, and then ever since, I was kind of you know uh, by you know by comic bookle, if that's a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. I've accomplished something today, at least. There we go. <laughs> I'm sure you've accomplished a lot. Uh, you know, and, and 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 that's a good segue, because you are in the middle of a very busy period in comics, as you can tell from the list of, of books that I read, uh, you know, off just then. And, and I'm sure that's leaving stuff out. But you've got a lot coming out. Um, what's up with that? <laughs> you know, it's a great question. You know, everything in, in life and certainly the business of writing and the career of writing is... It's cyclical and it, it comes in waves. Um, so part of part of like the huge, relatively huge for me, I guess, output of comic books these days is the result of a, a lot of creator owned work that I did during the pandemic that just happens to be coming out around now. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I when the pandemic started, it coincided with this New Year's resolution I made for 2020, not knowing that there would be a global pandemic. Um <laughs> that I want to get back into doing creator own comics. So that is sort of what produced um, Two Deads Die, the graphic novel I did with Howard Chaikin that came out back in December. That's mm-hmm. what um, produced Fragmentation, the graphic novel I did with Dark Horse that came out in January. Uh, and now Torrance, the image uh, book that I'm doing with Justin Greenwood that came out uh, on on this past Wednesday. Um so, it, you know, there's it, they, they were all written at different time periods, but it's just weird how completely without any planning on my part, because that's the only way I do things is no planning. Um, <laughs> they all came out within the same sort of three month period. And then again, coincidentally, that happened to coincide with Marvel calling um, and saying, hey, do you want to write some Star Wars comics, which was an easy uh, question to say yes to. And I'm, I'm actually now. uh two issues deep into a four issue mini series for Marvel uh, that hasn't been announced yet. So I can't say what it is, except that it's not star Wars. Okay. Um, 
So, yeah, so it's a lot of comic book work lately, um, which, of course, you know, has me not, you know, nothing but happy because I love writing comics. And, uh, you, you know, at the same time, you're, you're also a very busy, uh, you know, TV and film writer. Um, is there is there a balance to this? Uh, you know, is there, you know, or is it just let chaos reign, you know, I'm working on whatever I've got an idea for at the moment, whatever came to me, you know, in the shower or whatever. It's, it is very much more like let chaos reign. Um, kind of like, you know, when I was saying that, that things are cyclical, they're mm -hmm. cyclical on the other two sides of my business too. They're cyclical on the TV side. They're cyclical on the feature film side. Like I'll give an example. Like when I, was working on the Arrowverse shows, there was really no time for me to take on features. And I, you know, went a couple of years without working in, in movies. And then right, like right before the pandemic hit, there was like a three month period between the end of my involvement with the Arrowverse and the start of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I booked a whole bunch of movies, um, which was actually worked out very conveniently. It's, again, it's like I plan these things, but I'm not planning them at all. Because, you know, television and film production was shut down, but I was busy writing because I had just happened to book a bunch of movies in succession. And like that's sort of the way it's been for the last three years where, the, you know, I've, I've been working in TV, but the majority of my Hollywood stuff has been on the feature film side. Again, no plan whatsoever, just pure, <laughs> pure luck uh, and circumstance and. I always sort of describe it like taking on work. It's it's a lot like booking a plane. You know how like the airlines, they kind of have to overbook the plane. This is like yes. a secret of the airline industry, but they overbook the plane um, because they know that not everyone who has the ticket is actually going to show up. Um, that's that's a lot like the way I manage my workload. And every now and again, I've got to like offer people free air miles to give up their seat. <laughs> um, but it, that's it's very very rare. It's rare when I mean, knock on wood. It's 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 rare when like all the trains like collide uh with each other and by the way when they do i still try to keep that process invisible to the people who are hiring me um i you know i came up as a lawyer and when you're a lawyer you have like you know usually you have like 15 different cases that five of which are active at any given time mm -hmm. and um you know your job part of your job is making sure the client always feels like they're the only clients and I've taken that philosophy and I brought it over to the writing side of my career. So I, you know, I try really hard, even when the plane is overbooked um, to, you know, keep that, you know, part invisible um, to the people I'm working for. Um, and the way I do that is I just don't sleep, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, there's, there's a lot of writing that has to get done. And, you know, therefore the more, the more writing, the less sleep. I, you know, in, in terms of the airline metaphor, I like to think that there are some some studios or, or, or publishers out there that have little black cards with Mark Miles on them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so. I don't know. Again, it's like, it, it, you know, it's it's so funny. Like, again, you, you guys said I could digress. I'll, I'll digress. Like, Please do. It's so funny because like comic books, television and film, they all have different like there's different expectations uh, that come with them. Like I'll give an example, like during the pandemic, I turned in uh, uh, a script to this very major producer and uh, I, you know, I emailed it um, and she emailed back like, wow, that was fast. And I emailed back 
um, it's the 12th week of a 12 week writing contractual period. So <laughs> it, I'm like, and I realized, oh my God, like compared to what she's used to, which is people not hitting their deadlines, it is fast. Um, whereas not hitting your deadlines in TV or comics, that's fatal. Mm. Um, you know, so uh, different, you know, different mediums have different expectations. I am, I, I am a real stickler for deadlines. I'm harder on myself than anyone else is. Like I, I just w refuse to miss a deadline. Um, it, it simply is not, you know, it's, it's, it goes against my grain. It's, it's not in my DNA. So uh, some of these the, these indie books, these creator-owned books like uh, Two Dead to Die and Torrent are coming out through Image. Some like Last Flight Out and Fragmentation uh, have come out through Dark Horse. What determined what went where? Great question. Um, that's a really good question. I'm trying to like sort of piece it together. Again, no plan. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, well, I will say like in the case of Fragmentation, Fragmentation came about because I happened to be on a zoom with the folks at dark horse and they um you know well th first they asked me what was i was what i was working on and i just happened to have like the first printout of of uh last flight out on my desk i'm like so i you know i held it up to the camera like well i'm working on this <laughs> um and they they really dug it and they were like oh we would love to publish that so it was like Oh, okay. I guess this is going to Dark Horse. Um, and and similarly with fragmentation, later on in the Zoom, they were asking me, you know, they they really liked sort of the character-based familial sci-fi um, of Last Flight Out, and they asked me, do you have any other projects like that? And I said, actually, you know, I do. I you know, and I pitched them fragmentation because fragmentation at that point was nothing but a you know a couple of lines in my notebook. Um, but they they dug that also, and they said, "Well, we would love to do that also." So, um, you know, and and kind of similarly with uh, you know with Image, you know, was was talking with Eric Stevenson, the publisher in Image, and you know, pitched him Two Dead to Die and Torrent um, in separate conversations. But but still, um, yeah, I, again, no plan. I, I really like. Yeah, and this goes for all aspects, you know, of my business, you know, television, film, comics. At the end of the day, for me, it's about it comes down to two things. What is the project and do I like it? And who are the pe who are the people involved? Um, if I like the people, that's that's really the main thing. And I like the people at Image and I like the people at Dark Horse. Um, and that's kind of how. You know, that's really how these things sort of come about. Again, zero plan, <laughs> zero sort of strategy behind it. Um, just I, I kind of just go with where the relationships are taken. How, how do you feel like your your TV and, and film writing and your comics writing all sort of inform each other? Um, well, at the most basic level, practice is practice is practice. So you know, as I hopefully become a better TV writer, it also makes me a better feature writer, a better, you know, a, a better comic book writer and, you know, and, and vice versa. Um, as a more on a more practical level, I would say that, like, I'll give you an example. Um, back right before the pandemic, I directed my first hour of television mm -hmm. and 
you know, and, and people are saying like, wow, you really like, you, you know how to break down um, a script into shots. And I was like, yeah, cause I've been doing it for 15 years in comic books. Um, that's, that's what, that's what comic books is. So, um, you know, that's one way, like the, the comic books influences the TV stuff. Um, you know, the TV and film stuff influences comic books in the sense that, it sort of taught me how to get out exposition or get out information to the audience or in the case of comic books, the reader um, in, in sort of more elegant ways than just having a narration caption um, or having a, you know, what back in the day would have been a thought balloon, um, you know, to the point where I now can, if I want write um write a comic book without any captions or narration whatsoever um in fact I, i'm you know i'm working on a, a star I, I was working on an issue uh, of the star wars thing that was it, it's only r2d2 and i set a goal for myself that um i wouldn't use any narration and i wouldn't use any translation of r2's beeps and boops um so like you know that that that's pure that's pure visual storytelling, which was something that I really learned to do from writing movies. And must come in handy writing Chewbacca as much as you do, since also you're not translating the Shirawook there. It's just. Yes, exactly. Sound. Same, same rule set. And like, you know, like issue four of Han and Chewie, which was, you know, designed from jump to be a pure Chewbacca story. Um, same thing, you know, and, and there's also, you know, I would say a lot of issue 10 uh, is also very Chewbacca centric and uh, same. Yeah, same, same sort of goal there with with Chewbacca. And I would say a little bit with R2 there. There's one little trick that um, that I learned really from watching the Star Wars movies, which is you can it's helpful to have a character who speaks basic or speaks English um, with your non basic speaking character so that they can say what do you mean there's a blah 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 um you know by asking those questions you're sort of like sneakily translating what chewbacca is saying right and with and it also helps that you've got either han or maz kanata who are both great foils for that and are just one-liner machines to begin with totally and, and also there's to me like and again, I've, I've learned everything from like watching the Star Wars movies, but like having Han there is like a foil. It gives you a lot of chances of humor because Chewbacca can actually be very funny. Um, and by how I write Han's response is where the joke comes from. Are we digressing enough? Am I living up to the, the promise of that was uh, that I made uh, at the beginning? That was an amazing digression, and I Thank just you. learned learned something because Matt, I had no idea that the Wookiee language had a name. Shirawook. Oh yes. yeah, yeah, Shirawook. Um, it's it's really difficult to spell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's really difficult to spell, and every time I am uh, every time I'm you know writing a, a Star Wars script where Chewbacca's in it, like. It's like, okay, how do I spell this word again? Like, just for some reason, my brain refuses to learn how to spell it. Uh, th that's not surprising, given he comes from a planet with three consecutive Ys in its name. 
Yes. I, it actually took me a long time, believe it or not, to correctly spell Wookiee. The, the extra E. I missed the extra it's E the a extra lot myself. E. Lucasfilm had to correct me multiple times. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to spell it like cookie. Like, that's the way my brain wants to work. Um, <laughs> the extra E always, always uh, trips me up. Uh, I'm getting better. Just, just, you know, I feel like I finally nailed it with issue 10. Uh, and it was like, well, that's the last issue. Damn it. <laughs> it, it doesn't help that the Disney parks sell something called a Wookiee cookie because then you just by the way have, have you had the Wookiee cookie it's really quite good I have not had the Wookiee cookie I am a fan of the Ronto wraps and um, uh, whatever that spiced popcorn is called I can't remember oh yeah the popcorn is really really good uh, actually uh, I, believe it or not um, spent the day at Disneyland with Star Wars editor Supreme Mark Panicia um and we went to galaxy's edge and we had lunch uh at the cargo bay um and uh the food there is great like really love it oh, i'm gonna have to go when i'm i've got a work conference in august and we get one free night and we're right at one of the conference centers right off of disney like you can get to the parks by a quick like five minute shuttle I, can oh, have it. I know what go. i'm doing with my free night you go to Hollywood yeah, Studios, man. Go. It's worth it. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. If you haven't been on Rise of the Resistance, like, you know, you, you haven't experienced Star Wars. Uh, for the listeners, Matt is longing. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Yeah. My fault. My fault. It's 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 all good. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, something that I something else I wanted to ask about, you know, is is there a recent example uh, that you can talk about about how your past as a lawyer has helped you navigate the industry. I, yeah, I can't, it's funny. I can't think of a specific example. What I can say is that I, I basically, especially in television production, especially as a showrunner, I mm. use it every day. Um, like every single day, like, because I, first of all, I, you know, I was a litigator. So like I was a, a trial attorney, which is a, a very different set of skills from like a transactional lawyer or a uh, trust and estates lawyer or, or, you know, there's a bunch of different kinds of attorneys. Um, and when you're a litigator, you, you learn a lot of things. First and foremost, you, you have to write a very long, sometimes 50 page briefs in a single night. So the first thing it did was maybe a very fast writer. Uh, and I, you know, use that skill set every single day. Um, but also it teaches you how to negotiate. So like when I'm, you know, show running and I have to figure out a rate for an actor, you know, it's a negotiation and I developed, you know, those skills uh, as an attorney. Um, similarly, you know, like I was saying with clients, you know, managing multiple things at once, but making everyone feel like, you know, you know, it's the only thing you're, I'm working on. That, that's a skill I use every day. Um, you know, strategy, tactics, thinking ahead. Again, very important uh, for show running and, and just production in general. Mm. Um, yeah, it's like every single day I, I you know, I, I use those skills. And I'm not just saying that in case my parents are listening to this. Um, <laughs> because, you know, Lord knows my parents, it's tough. Like, you know, they had... They, they have three sons and, you know, two out of the three became writers and they at least had they had a third you know son who, who was an attorney who had a legitimate, predictable, stable profession. And uh, that that all went away. And they're like, oh, my God, like all those years of 
of law school tuition, all for nothing. I'm like, no, not mom and dad. It wasn't for nothing. I'm, you know, using those those tools every single day, which is really true. I, I was curious if there was ever an incident where you're like working on a legal drama, you know, and, and you ever get to use your background to go, uh, no, that's not how it would have happened. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, that happens all the time. Like, you know, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, like when I because I first got my start as a professional writer um, on a show called The Practice, and then I moved over to a show called Law and Order. Um, and actually, here's here's where being um, skillful actually really helped. Um, I was uh, I was on Law and Order and I had these friends um, who were on Law and Order Special Victims Unit. And they, they came into my office one day and they they, they asked me a question, basically, like they had to get Benson and Stabler, the protagonists of mm. special, special Victims Unit. They had to get Benson and Stabler into someone's house without a warrant. And um, I explained to them this thing called the exclusionary rule, which is the truth of the matter is with with one like minor exception, police can there's nothing that prevents police from entering your house without a warrant. Um, what keeps police honest is that anything they find in your house without a warrant can't be used in court. That's called the exclusionary rule. And, and in the case that my friends were laying out for me, um, they, Benson and Stabler didn't actually need any evidence in the house. They just needed to get inside. So they were like, oh, my God, this works perfectly. Like, and they thought I was a genius. And, and this was particularly helpful because one of them turned out to be my wife. And uh, I, I think that that moment really was kind of where, like, they, you know, she stopped looking at me as a friend's a potential life partner. So um, I say, good job, mom and dad. Good job, law school. <laughs> you know, that that law degree, you know, got me my wife. So uh, let's 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 dive into some of what you got going on right now. So one of your current projects is uh, a new image series called Torrent with artist Justin Greenwood, colorist Rico Renzi, letterer Keith Wood. That just issue one just launched February 15th. Uh, the the kind of quick elevator line is Michelle Metcalf is the world's most happy go lucky hero, Cracker Jack, until tragedy forces her to cross the line from hero to vigilante to uh, to start with here. Uh, how many issues is this one? Uh, Torrent is ongoing. Um, okay. And, and each each uh, arc I'm designing to be five issues long mm -hmm. and sort of every every book I work on, particularly an ongoing series, I, I always sort of like set like a little challenge for myself or a little like rule for myself just to, you know, just to keep the book both interesting to me, but also to make the book unique, you know, um, from all the other stuff I've written. So in, in the case of um, in the case of Torrent, um, I really enjoyed writing five issue arcs for Han and Chewie. The difference with Torrent is that if I've done my job right at the end of every fifth issue, you're going to wonder how there's going to be another arc. Like so at the end of issue five, you should wonder how the hell is there going to be an issue six? And at the end of issue 10, you'll wonder how the hell is there going to be an issue 11? Um, so I'm, I'm trying you know, to really kind of write myself, not just into a corner, but, but write the whole book into a corner, if that makes sense, um, with each, you know, with, with, with each arc. So 
we'll see how successful um, uh, that turns out to be. Um, but uh, I, you know, uh, I, I'm having a blast working out where uh, uh, um, Justin Greenway and I are working on um, the second arc right now. Uh, I'm breaking out the story and Justin is doing the character designs because we'll have a, a few new characters uh, for this one. Um, and it's been a blast. I mean, Justin and I, have worked together before on two separate projects uh, for Oni Press. And uh, this is our third collaboration. And it's always just so delightful to work with Justin because he's, you know, he's not only like incredibly talented, but he also just has such a great, you know, a, a great attitude, a great enthusiasm. His enthusiasm is always very contagious to me. Cracker Jack makes a bunch of jokes throughout the, this the first issue about copyright violations, which one, you know, as a lawyer might be something, uh, but she's making references to pop culture properties that exist in our world, yes. which isn't something you see a lot in creator owned superhero stuff that usually sort of cr creates discrete pop culture of its own universe or something. Was it a conscious choice to make this relatable? Just a funny gag, so why not? It, it was. It was very much a conscious. Well, it was both. I mean, look. First of all, I'll take any. If anything, you know, strikes me as a funny gag, I, I have no self control. I will absolutely do it. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the idea, the idea behind this book was to take a sort of a Bronze Age ethos a bronze age aesthetic and bring it into the 21st century and, and make it feel like a 2023 book and the example i sort of use is the way raiders of the lost ark was very much a product of 1982 it was, it was shot with 1982 technology and it was you know it, it you know that's spielberg with a 1982 sensibility but it's drawing from the serials of the 1930s. Um, I kind of wanted to do something similar with Torrent, where our, you know, serials of the 1930s are actually the comic books of the Bronze Age, which were the comic books that I grew up with. Um, but we're still telling them with, you know, it's 2023 coloring, it's computer coloring, it's 2023, you know, uh, story uh, pacing, um, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, you know, the the little pop culture references and the references to other comic books that just fell, it felt of a piece with what we were trying to do right down to it. I'm not just doing it for the sake of humor. Um, although again, like I said, if it, if I, if it makes me chuckle as I'm writing, I, I definitely stick it in, but there's also references, very specific, references and quotations and homages to Frank Miller's work um, because Frank Miller uh, and particularly his work on Daredevil um, and on Dark Knight Returns were, you know, points of inspiration for us and, and sort of, you know, in Holly, if you use a Hollywood term, they were comps for us um, both in terms of the story we were telling, but also in terms of, if you look at Justin's art, you know, he, he writes characters and he draws characters in motion uh, the same way Frank does. Um, and I think there's no one better at, at you know, displaying characters emotion than Frank Miller. You know, it's interesting. You, you talked about that, 
the Bronze Age story through a modern lens because I was thinking after reading it that this could easily be yet another superhero deconstruction, but it had a different vibe. And that, now that I've heard you say that, it's like I can see where that difference in that vibe comes from. Yeah, thank you for saying that because I, I have to say like the superhero deconstruction is like, that's that's always been like sort of the third rail that we've been trying to avoid. And, and it's like, and it's part like, it's almost baked into the concept because the concept originally sort of started out as a thought experiment, which was, could I take Spider-Man and turn Spider-Man into the Punisher? Um, and again, it's, it, that was, that was just the nugget of the idea. And of course it, it, the story developed layers uh, that go well beyond that. But because that was the initial sort of nugget of an idea, the, the possibility or the, the threat of having a story that's just deconstructing the Bronze Age was always there. And I, I, I never want to go there. And by the way, like, you know, I, I go into everything with the best of intentions and sometimes I'm not always successful with things. Um, I co-wrote the Green Lantern movie after all. Um, but ho hopefully we've managed to avoid the the deconstruction again much the same way that like star wars was inspired by flash gordon serials and buck rogers serials um or, or raiders was inspired by you know the adventure serials of the 1930s um not neither one of those properties ever descended into a deconstruction of what inspired them we're you know attempting to do the do the same thing when you're when you're telling a story with superheroes, how much do you have to worry about using names that have been used before? You know, not like you're going to name somebody Superman or Batman, obviously, but like, <laughs> you know, it turns out that you gave somebody the same code name as somebody from like the 89 Marvel handbook Book of the Dead or something. Um, look, you know, the truth of the matter is that's that's always a concern that in fact, I would say it's it's practically a, uh, you know, an occupational hazard at this point. Um <laughs> You know, but I also, quite frankly, I sometimes worry about um, repeating names that I've already used myself, like uh, like the bad guy um, in Star Trek Echoes um, was originally called Draconis in my in my outline and my pitch um, until I realized, oh, wait a second. I used that name for the bad guy in, in the Blade series I did with Howard Chaykin, um, you know, forever ago. So. Um, when you've been doing this as long as I have, you, you also have to worry about stealing from yourself. I worry sometimes more about stealing from myself than stealing from other people, um, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, it was it was also just announced that your uh, Cold War graphic novel, Too Dead to Die, with Howard Chaikin, uh, speaking of Howard, was picked up for adaptation by Universal. Uh, yes. For, first of all, congratulations. Uh, you know, Thank given, you. given how intertwined your career is across media, you know, was this something that you had been been shooting for from jump? No, it wasn't. I, well, first of all, I should say every time I do a comic book property that's creator owned, mm -hmm. I, I I never think about the TV show or movie or whatever it could get adapted into. I mean, yes, in today's world where you know IP is always sort of recycled or you know reimagined, um, it's always a possibility. But I am a firm believer that. The comic book has to be the comic book and it has to exist 
as uh, you know a really satisfying read on its own merits um it you know it can't feel like a screenplay in comic book form um but the funny thing is because here's the you know here, here's the the dirty secret about hollywood the dirty secret about hollywood is that you may read something um you know on deadline or in uh hollywood reporter or variety um and and assume that oh this just happened uh, a lot of times the news that you're reading is actually pretty uh it's pretty late <laughs> it's pretty mm. old mm. um uh and and that actually is the case of two dead to die um you know i don't think i'm talking out of school when i say that um i turned in my third draft of the screenplay um on friday when the news broke um totally totally coincidentally but it, that just gives you a sense of how long i've been working on the screenplay um and what's interesting is, um, with the exception of Resurrection, which was the uh, only book I did with uh, Justin Greenwood, which was optioned for a time by Universal, mm -hmm. um, I've never, you know, and, and that never progressed to the point where I actually did a script. I've actually never been called upon to adapt my own work before uh, until Two Dead to Die. And it, it was very interesting because, you know, I've, I've made a, a decent living adapting other people's works to television or film. Um, I've never been called upon to do it myself. And in many ways I was, in many ways I was, um, how do I put it? Like not hoisted on my own petard, but my, you know, uh, my bet was called because, you know, for years I've been saying that the, the movie or the TV show can't be a, 100% faithful adaptation of the source material because the medium is different and different mediums require different things to happen in the story. And um, when I had to do Two Dead to Die, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's see if I can walk my own talk. Um, and, you know, sure enough, like the, the movie version is, is different from the graphic novel. Um, and, that was that was interesting it, it was interesting to me again it's as, as the person who wrote the graphic novel and is now writing the adaptation uh it, it becomes a very interesting exercise sorry i really rambled there <laughs> we love a good ramble we absolutely love a good ramble um thing that was interesting struck me as interesting about the announcement is is it it, it seemed to think that the book hadn't come out yet when it had had been out since like December. I know. I wanted to cry. Um, <laughs> yes, I know. I think that's since been corrected. Um, yeah. But yes, you're right. It said upcoming. Uh, I think both articles managed to get it wrong that way. Um, you know, so uh, yeah, I don't know what to do about that. That was, um, you know, the, the, the folks at bleedingcool.com were, were very, uh, they were on it. They they corrected the record. Um, yeah, Rich and, had and fun they with also, that one. <laughs> they also, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure that they enjoyed that. Um, they also quoted from my uh, my Substack newsletter, which I kind of appreciated because mm. um, I'm always trying to you know drive folks to to that newsletter. Um, so you know maybe you know take lemons make lemonade. I don't know. There, there, there you go. <laughs> you reach out to reach out to folks and be like, hey, if you want to copy this book that's been out for uh, for three months, call your local comic yeah. shop. And it, exactly, exactly. Because, you know, look, you know, in today's marketplace, it's always difficult to sell a book. Um, and uh, I think the fact that we've 
you know, made this this Hollywood deal, um, you know, should should at least help, you know, raise awareness of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I for for certain, I think I think you know people became aware of it uh, in a way that they haven't been. I just wish they were aware of it in a way that included the fact that they could buy it now; <laughs> they don't have to wait. I have a feeling that's probably a a a, a thing with a lot of uh, adaptations of creator-owned properties. <laughs> You know, the sort of, sort of tra- you know, that translation of how do we get people back, you know, back to the comic shop after, uh, uh, let's see, what's a good example here? I don't know, watching Hellboy or, or uh, Stumptown for the one season that it was on ABC. But uh, so, you know, you've worked you've worked with Howard before, as we mentioned, but, uh, you know, how, how, how did you rope him into this one? It reads like something that was was made with him in mind. You know, here's here's the funny story. Um, so. Like I said, you know, the pandemic hit, um, production was shut down. I just started, I, in some cases, I just started writing stuff. Um, and that was true with Two Dead to Die. I just, you know, I'd had that idea forever. And I just started um, writing, you know, uh, that on spec. And when I write, I picture the art in my head, or, or at least I picture sort of the shots and, and the way the panel, you know, gets laid out, um, or at least theoretically laid out, because certainly what I see in my mind's eye is sometimes different from what the artist sees, which is totally fine. Um, but about 10 pages in, I realized that the art I was seeing in my mind's eye was Howard's. Um, now, I should probably say that Howard and I have worked together in the past on several things, including uh, or runs on Blade and Wolverine. Um, but... It, it was very, it was a very interesting, like it was an interesting sort of process of realizing, wait a second, like, oh, the art I'm seeing is Howard's, which is not, that's not typical. Um, you know, when I write for, when I write a script without knowing who the artist is, the art I see is normally very generic. Um, but here it was, it was very obviously and vividly Howard's work. So when I got about like 20 or so pages in, I emailed Howard and said, are you, you know, would you be up for reading something um, and and maybe doing something together? And what I didn't know, uh, in fact, I just found this out last week uh, when, when Howard and I were doing an interview together. I didn't know that at that point, Howard had sworn not to uh, work with another writer. Um, you know, because Howard is a writer in his own right, and a very mm-hmm. talented one at that. Um, and I didn't know that he had sworn off writing uh, for, you know, uh, oh, sorry, that he had sworn off drawing for uh, other writers. Um, so it, it's particularly kind that he was willing to read those 20 pages and then especially, especially kind uh, to say, yes, I'm, I'm on board um, to, you know, to, to draw this thing. Um, so it worked out, you know, extremely well because, you know, Howard is not only talented and he's not only a delightful you know, human being, but he also brings with him a- an incredible team. Um, you know, Ken Brusenak, who does the design and the lettering and basically sort of puts the whole thing together, um, you know, and Gustavo Yen, uh, who's, you know, this incredibly talented colorist, um, y- you know, those three gentlemen really do a phenomenal job of of creating a very very unique looking book um you know i am 
I'm hard pressed to, you know, to, to point to another book that's that's out there that looks the way Two Dead to Die does. Um, and uh, I would also, I'm while I'm going on and on about the team, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Thomas Kittner, who is, you know, his his quote unquote title is is editor, but the truth of the matter is is that he is more than you know he he's more than just an editor. He's more than just you know um, uh, someone who helps put the you know the sausage together. He has ideas. He has you know suggestions. He he has you know um, you know he helped like get us you know uh michael golden and and jose garcia lopez uh doing the uh some of the ba- ba- you know short story backups in the graphic novel so it's it's a really wonderful team that howard uh brought to bear um and uh i'm just very lucky now uh, given given there's there's sort of chapter breaks in this was there a point at which this was going to be you know a series versus a, a graphic novel you know, it's funny. Originally, it was conceived of as a series, um, and it was actually Eric Stevenson who pointed out that this would work out better as a graphic novel. Um, partially because it's it's not a superhero story, um, you know. Partially because of the way we were telling the story, um, and sure enough, when when Eric suggested that, Howard and I were both like. Yep, that makes sense. Like, I mean, it was it was like immediately, uh, it, it was me- immediately a no brainer for us. Um, even though, you know, w- you know, because of the economics of the comic book business, um, we probably you know left some money on the table by by publishing it as a graphic novel as opposed to publishing it as a uh, a monthly series that then becomes a graphic novel. Um, but uh, you know, again, it, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's it's got to work as a comic book first. And part of that equation is it's got to be in the right format. It's, it, it has to, you know, be presented in the way that, you know, best serves the story. And in this case, it was, it was as a single volume with, you know, what, you know, became like a lot of really great backup material. When did the uh, the kayfabe of Cross uh, come into the picture? You know, Jeffrey Harris, Phoenix Comics, sort of being able to track the rights issues, etc. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I think that was always inherent uh, in the the project. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Um, you've also you've also got Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Michael Golden contributing art in this. Uh, who who's left on your bucket list after after that? <laughs> You know, well, I well, let me tell you. I mean, well, first of all, I, I I've never been uh, able to work with either gentleman before. So this this when you say bucket list, you're you're being dead on. Uh, and they were both on my bucket list. In fact, you know, Michael Golden hasn't done interiors in ten years. Um, and when I, I you know pitched him to uh, to Tom and and Howard. Um, it, it seemed like the longest of long shots. In fact, Howard was like, no, he doesn't do interiors anymore. It's never going to happen. Uh, and uh, Tom, who, who enjoys a little bit of a, you know, friendly rivalry, shall we say with Howard uh, was, was quite pleased with himself when uh, correctly, when he uh, got uh, Michael to, to join. Um, and <laughs> again, you know, to, under the heading of digressions, um, I didn't have a story 
for Michael until Michael was on board. Uh, and then the moment he said yes, I knew that whatever the story was, it had to involve helicopters. Um, <laughs> because uh, for, for, you know, the, the younger uh, listeners you have, uh, Michael uh, did a series back in the 1980s called The Nam, which was set during the Vietnam War. And he drew, I mean, the whole book looks gorgeous, but he drew the most incredible lifelike helicopters I'd seen in comic books. Um, so I knew I had to do that uh, for, for this book. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of who else is on my bucket list, I, uh, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, and Frank Miller are all still very much on my bucket list. It's a big three right there. It is a big three. It's it's an ambitious it's an ambitious three. I mean, you know, Neil Adams was was certainly on it. Um, and and Neil and I have we've collaborated not on a comic book, but he provided some artwork that played on Arrow. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, and so and and George Perez actually, I was I was fortunate enough to. He was also on my bucket list, uh, but I was able to do a ten page. Uh, Justice Society of America story with him a number of years ago. And uh, I actually own two pages from that story. Um, and they, they make me happy every time I see them. <laughs> so uh, apart from the adaptation, which we know is in progress, uh, I'll, I'll close out this portion of the interview with this question. Will Simon Cross return? Um, well, I tell you, at the end of the both the graphic novel and the screenplay adaption, it says that Simon Cross always returns. Um, and I was I was actually uh, talking with someone the other day about a, a, another Simon Cross story. Um, look, I here here's the here's the honest truth. The honest truth is that whether or not there's another graphic novel will very much depend upon the success of this graphic novel because that's the world we live in. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, if we are fortunate enough to make this movie that I think will, you know, put a lot of wind in our sails. And finally, um, one thing I really, really enjoyed, uh, was writing the prose short story that is in the graphic novel as, as a bonus feature. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing I was, the thing I was talking about with my friend the other day was, the idea of doing another, you know, prose piece with Simon Cross. Um, so, of course, you know, there's all those Jeffrey Harris rights issues that are, uh, uh, of course, complicating matters. But very I, messy stuff. <laughs> I, I would very much, uh, you know, I I'd very much like to re revisit the character. Um, and, um, you know, as uh, you know, to to quote another super spy, never say never again. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, we uh, we said at the top. I mean, you've got Star Wars now, and you've got Star Trek upcoming. So so now you're in my house, and so <laughs> uh, what are your histories with those two franchises? Longtime fan on both. Longtime fan on both. I mean, Star Wars. I saw Star Wars when I was six years old. Um, I my father was supposed to be taking me to a movie called The Bad News Bears, which, suffice it to say, has nothing in common with Star Wars. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I didn't know that I wasn't seeing Bad News Bears until the lights went down and uh, John Williams' score thunders on 
and a basically a star destroyer flew over my head and i i remember everything i remember everything about that experience like so vividly um i remember where in the theater i was sitting um and i remember basically really feeling like my life had changed um my relationship to star trek is it's similar but different um my dad used to watch uh star trek um you know in syndication and he uh i would i would occasionally like you know sit and watch like pieces with him so like i saw like a lot of episodes, but very much out of order. <laughs> it's sort of like my introduction to nonlinear structure. My first real full-on watching a Star Trek story from beginning to end was when my grandparents took me to see Star Trek, the motion picture. And even though it was, you know, certainly a much slower paced movie than any Star Wars, um, I I was in, you know, I, I loved... Um, you know, I love, you know, those characters. And the it, it, when I was talking to IDW about doing a Trek series, they were saying, we really would love to do something with the original cast, you know, the TOS era Trek. And I said, well, my true introduction to Trek was through the movies. Um, could I set something during the era of the movies? And they said, we don't see why not. Um, so uh, I, I chose to tell a story right after the events of the motion picture, even though I can recite every line from Star Trek two and Star Trek three by heart. Um, you know, Star Trek two and Star Trek three are, are my, that's my track, like, you know, like down to my cellular level. Um, and I will say that I think Star Trek three is the search for Spock is, very, very uh, misunderstood and not appreciated as much as it, as it should be. Is there some freedom in going right after uh, motion picture? Because there is that sort of 15-year gap that there isn't a ton of continuity. And is it a little more free than writing Han and Chewie, which is in a much more tightly packed canon time good question um you know i'll be totally honest i don't the the answer to your question is yes but i don't really feel it either way um you know i i certainly this period of track that i'm working in is is much less that that ground is not tilled as much as the era of star wars that i'm working in but I don't feel any more or less freedom in, in either, you know, in either, uh, property. Um, you know, in, in both cases, I'm really just trying to tell the best story I can. Um, and I, I know also in both cases, like, I know I'm not going to kill off anyone. I know I'm not going to, you know, um, I, I, like, but it's funny. I, I will say both, both, uh, license holders if you want to sort of be technical about it, are really really great and very accommodating like i'll give you an example uh in jabba's palace there there's a line in return of the jedi that always always drove me crazy and not like frustrated me but more like wait a minute how would this really work and 
I'd been thinking about it for years and years and years. And the, the folks at Lucasfilm are very kind. They let me put in a line of dialogue to sort of address my little, my little bugaboo, you know, my little thing that kind of, you know, it always, always vexed me. Um, so, you know, in, in both cases, Lucasfilm and Paramount are just very cooperative and very like, you know, very cool, quite frankly. Like it's, you know, I, I'm always honest when I write the scripts, I, I always say like, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm trying this or, um, I'm not sure that, that this will work for you. Um, I, I try to keep, make it a dialogue. Um, and that, that seems to be working out, you know, pretty well so far. Another question about, I guess, balance is you're working at a point with Han and Chewie where Han is almost at the peak of his roguishness. We are yeah. not at the Han from Solo who still has at least some nowhere near idealism. Most, idealism yes i was just yes. Most, and you're nowhere near the han yet who has had that rekindled by luke and leia how are you finding balancing still making han the lovable rogue and not making him either too much down the rogue path that he feels irredeemable but is still a scoundrel Great, great question. Um, I'll tell you, when I originally pitched out the Han and Chewie story, I I basically began with my sort of interpretation of Han, particularly the Han of, of this time period. And and that basically what I, what I said was Han is the guy who does the right thing, does the right thing in spite of himself. And then kicks himself for it after. Um, and that is very much the, that, that sentence has been very much the North star of the, my whole run. That That's the thing I always try to not only try to return to, but also I, without sort of spoiling what happened in the most recent issue of Han and Chewie and, or, or what's about to happen in issue 10 I always knew that Han would have would get hired to get something for Jabba the Hutt and then be placed in a position where he had to choose between the money and doing the right thing. And again, I think at any stage of Han's life, even even in Solo, you know, because you kind of see this in the third act of Solo, he he's given the choice between the money and doing the right thing. And God damn it, he does the right thing. Um, and he kind of like what, what varies is how much he kicks himself for it. You know, when we meet him in, you know, it, it, it when we meet him in, in a new hope, um, it's kind of interesting because we never get to see the scene after the medal ceremony where he's talking to, to Chewbacca and going, I know, I know, I can't believe I did it either. You know, I can't believe I came back either. Like, uh, spoiler alert, by the way. Um, very <laughs> old spoiler alert. But like, I, that that to me is the fun part of Han. Um, and and you, you see it, by the way, 
all the way through to Force Awakens, you know, where, you know, Maz, like Maz, Maz has Han's number, you know, Maz knows, oh, you're such a big talker, but like, you know, you're going to end up doing the right thing. Um, and, and that to me is the thing that makes Han, quite frankly, such a, such a great character. That's a dynamic that I'm, I'm hard pressed to say I've seen anywhere else with any other character. Um, yeah, he, he's a blast to write. Um, and, and, uh, again, digression, but like, I've been, you know, I, I've tried very hard, even though I'm writing the prior to new hope era version of Han in terms of his voice and his dialogue. I'm very, very influenced by Lawrence Kasdan's writing because to me, Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote on Empire, Force Awakens, Return of the Jedi, and Solo, uh, he writes, he is the voice of Han Solo as far as I'm concerned. All, all respect to George Lucas. Um, no one writes Han better than, you know, like, I, I, again, digression, but in, in Force Awakens, when, uh, they're they're on the ship with the Rathars, um, and Han tells Ray, "We're going out of here at light speed." And Ray says, "Is that even possible?" Han says, "I never asked myself that question until after I've done it." And I will bet anyone real folding money that Lawrence Kasdan wrote that line. That line was not due respect to J.J. Abrams. That was not J.J. Abrams' line. That was Lawrence Kasdan. I know it in my bones. It is a very never tell me the odds. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very never tell me the odds line. It's such a great, actually, I will also say the, the exchange, you know, you're Han Solo. I used to be. That was, that was Lawrence Kasdan also. You also wrote uh, the revelations one shot from a few months back, yeah. which was something that tied the quote unquote modern era that, was going on then back to the high republic which is the first time we've seen those two eras sort of really touch in the same book how how did that assignment come about for you you know i'd say that was well basically you know that came about the same way all the star wars uh assignments have come out mark panicia called me up and um asked if i had any interest which is is i'll be honest kind of funny at this point because of course I have interest. It's Star Wars. I'm not going to, there's, there is no scenario under which anyone asks me to write Star Wars and I say no. Um, um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was really, that was such an interesting challenge because obviously I'm writing things that I know are going to take place, but haven't been written yet, which is, you can write that from a script perspective pretty easily. It's getting the art to sync up. That's really hard. Um, that that's the tricky part because also, uh, you know, one of the, the sort of little rules that I set for myself, and this is not an artistic rule. This is just being not a dick rule is I didn't want to write anything that was going to tie the hands of any of the writers or artists um, that were coming after, you know, coming after me. Um, so it was, it was tricky. Um, it, it was, it was a really, you know, tricky assignment, but that's honestly what made it fun. Um, because I, I, you know, I always think in terms of like, what's the cool factor here? And, you know, the cool factor was 
we're actually using a comic book to show the readers stuff that won't happen for another six months. You know, that's, that's a wonderful, like little challenge. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I had a blast working on it as tricky as it was, because it was hard. I mean, it was, it was hard on all of us, particularly I feel bad for the editors. Um, like it, it was putting together uh, a whole, um, you know, I had to make charts and flow charts and everything. It was, it was, it was a, it was a definitely a challenge, but um, had an absolute blast doing it. And now that we're actually right now without spoiling anything, we're, we are very deep into a lot of the events that were predicted or, or fore foreseen in revelations right now. And the rubber is the narrative rubber is meeting the road. Um, and it's, it's a blast, uh, to sort of see it all start to come to fruition. And you actually all start to see not only how, how everything is connected in this great, like, you know, old school Marvel universe kind of way, but also how long a game, uh, how long a con, uh, the entire Star Wars writing team has been playing. Like you're, you're going to see things pay off that have been building for years it's it's really just as a fan it is great to watch it like i love every time i get a script or an issue in um like i i just devour it as a fan because it's it's a blast it's it's really it's it's just really really cool to see so uh we'll, we'll end the little star trek star wars section on a question that involves uh the Favorite word of a good friend of mine and Dan, uh, Rob Lynch, regular guest of the show, uh, Zeitgeist. Um, so in Revelations, you introduced Ajax Sigma. Yes. Who was a droid who led uh, a droid revolt trying to liberate his fellow droids. Yes. And lately, I've been seeing a trend in a lot of sci-fi with AIs going rogue and developing anti-biological basis. Uh, in most of the modern tracks, Discovery Season 2, Picard oh. Season 1, Lower Decks Season 3, uh, Seasons 2 and 3 of uh, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville, uh, the horror movie Megan that's still mm -hmm. out, and let's not forget Orcus and the Phalanx in X-Men. Yes, with the advancement of social media and the expansion of AI, have we sort of reached a point where this fear of tech overwhelming humanity, which has always been in sci-fi, but has come in and out of vogue, is sort of returning to the forefront? And before you answer, I just want to point out that question was actually written by Jet Chat GPT. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Well, well, first of all, um, so I myself and a, a bunch of writers um for ho hollywood writers uh we we publish a weekly substack uh called writing from the trenches um and this past friday we published an edition about ai and specifically chat gpt um and because because i tell you like you know if, if you want to talk about ai posing an existential threat to anyone ChatGPT makes a pretty good case that it's 
it's threatening a uh, existential uh, situation for Hollywood screenwriters. Um, in fact, we actually have ChatGPT contribute to our conversation in the Substack newsletter. Um, here's here's the honest truth. The honest truth is, I do think we're pretty far away from you know a AI skynetting us you know into some sort of apocalypse but it's certainly like you said part of the zeitgeist right now it it's funny because it's always been part of the zeitgeist you know that's terminator that's uh the matrix that's i mean there's so much sci-fi that's based on ai taking over um what what i think is different now is we're, this is the first time we've got these stories going on at the same time that AI is making some real major quantum leaps forward. And you like, you know, like ChatGPT um, or, or the art, you know, AIs like Midjourney or Dolly. Um, so we're, we're just seeing a very, to my mind, it's not that the stories have changed. Because like I said, those stories have been around for a long time. I mean, hell, I mean, Star Trek, the motion picture, V'ger, like that's an AI going rogue, uh, essentially. Um, that's Those stories have been part and parcel of sci-fi and comics and genre forever. What's happening now is those stories are now coming up against reality. And like, you know, the Microsoft Bing search engine talking about how it wants to get the nuclear codes. Um you know, that's that's a great example. Maybe not. Maybe great's the wrong word. Um, but that that's a very profound example of reality meeting, you know, fiction. Um, but I, I think, you know, and I, and I don't see a change to this happening anytime soon. I think, you know, this this is going to be in the zeitgeist. Uh, because it's going to be in our periphery and our conversations. Um for a good long while now. Never did trust that Bing. Well, you know what? Anything with a name like Bing, that, that's a bad name. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have notes on the name. The name's bad. It's a bad name. Um, it's funny. I'm, I'm pitching a show right now that is ostensibly not about AI, but it's really about AI. Um, and it's, it's forced me to think a lot about AI and, I have thoughts about it as a writer, just as a working writer. And again, I would I would check out the writing from the trenches substack to see what I'm talking about. But I also have thoughts about it just as a human being. And my attitude about it, which is sort of reflected in this show that I'm pitching, is it's as a practical matter, it's not about, you know, AI taking over or us you know being conquered by ai it's really about how are we going to integrate artificial intelligence into our daily lives um and that i think is um you know uh, I, I think that's that's the question of our time so you know as we're kind of winding down here uh just wanted to ask this kind of throw throw back a little bit you know, you had such an outsized role in the Arrowverse becoming what it did. You know, is there one particular thing uh, you know you you think of off the top of your head that you know you're proud of that you got to do there? 
Oh, well, first of all, thank you for that question. Um, and thanks for <laughs> saying that has role. Um, you know, probably can I, I'm going to pick, I'll pick two things because it's hard to pick. Um, That's fine. <laughs> like I, I'm very proud of crisis on earth X. Um, that's probably my favorite of the crossovers. Mm. At the same time, I'm very proud of just like the sheer impossible magic trick that was Crisis on Infinite Earths. Like that was, I mean, that that very nearly killed me. And I mean that in the most literal of ways. Um, oh, wow. And it was... It, it it was it was hard, but it was also you know it's it's so fulfilling because we always said we we do this for the fans, um, and you know I think Crisis on Earth X was the ultimate version of telling a really great story for the fans. Um, Crisis on Infinite Earths was just you know it's it's fan service all the way down, and I don't mm-hmm. I, I I'm actually proud of fan service. I I think fan service is good um you know um and it's not to say it doesn't have a good story but like you know particularly you know with the fifth episode we we definitely started to run up against the limitations of of money um the climactic battle in act five um was i don't i've never talked about this publicly but we we basically lost an entire day's worth of shooting because the climactic battle was um, scheduled to be filmed over two days. The problem was the first day it was completely raining. We had terrible weather and then it was clear skies the second day and nothing matched. So we basically Ooh. had to make a choice in the editing room. Are we using footage from day one or are we using footage from day two? And by the way, that, had the functional effect of cutting an entire day's worth of shooting out of the finished episode. Um, so I think there's a part of me that will always w- regret the fact that we just didn't have the footage that we needed to, you know, to, to tell the story at the level. Like if I compare the climactic battle of crisis on infinite earth with the climactic battle on crisis on earth, earth X, which by the way, were directed by the same director, Gregory Smith. It's, it's no comparison, but of course, earth X had all the taste worth of shooting in the cut. Um, infinite earths had 50% less a <laughs> taste worth of shooting in the cut. Um, so uh, very, 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 very challenging. Um, it's one of the reasons why, like, I, I, I hope at some point for the fifth anniversary or the 10th anniversary, or I'll take the sixth anniversary. I don't care. Um, I'd love just, just give me, give me enough money to work with an editor and enough money to work with a visual effects company. And I'd love to edit the whole thing into one singular story and, you know, give some love to that fifth act of episode five. Cause um, I did think we did some, pretty amazing things i i look back on and i go how did we do all that um and the the answer is a lot of luck a lot a lot of time very little sleep and i burned every single bridge there is to burn um, wow. yeah yeah there's i and i and i spent 10 grand of my own money which was the best 10 grand i ever spent but my agent not my agent sorry my lawyer called me up and i was like 
I got a phone call from Business Affairs at Warner Brothers. They're saying you're giving back $10,000 of your producing fee. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Do it. And best $10,000 I ever spent. I'm not going to tell you what it bought us, but it bought us something really great. Okay. So what we're really saying is hashtag release the Guggenheim cut. Oh, God, please not. Please no. Um, Don't worry. Twitter will be dead soon cut. enough. I would give, give us the anniversary cut. That would be that would be great. Um, but I, I, I tell you, I, I, I love, you know, I love things like release the IRA cut or even re release the Snyder cut. I just, um, as long as it stays positive, you know, like that, it, it that, that to me is the, that's where the, the line is. Like, it's gotta be positive. It's gotta come from a positive place. It's gotta come from, uh, you know, a, you know, a, a, positive intentions if i if i may may give you a third answer to sure. the question um bebo oh <laughs> bebo. you know here's the thing i can't take credit for bebo i, I gotta give i gotta give credit for bebo to i'll, I'll give it to, to two people um first uh, let me tell you where bebo came from please um Bebo came from originally Keto Shimizu, who went on to become the co-showrunner of Legends. She had this idea. We had we had just killed off um, Stein in Crisis on Earth X, mm. and she had and we were talking about an episode where let's bring back Young Stein. Um, you know, right on the heels of Stein's death, so that the Legends, you know, characters have to deal with um you know ha have to deal with the consequences or have to you know it's like it's like oh my god this character has has died and you know we've we've lost this person now we're dealing with the young version of this person and and it, and it gets you know it gets uh emotional um and keto, keto had this idea this great idea like, what if essentially Tickle Me Elmo, which Tickle Me Elmo was this very, very popular toy back in the 90s, where Elmo from Sesame Street, you tickled him and he laughed. And, you know, it was it was honestly like the it was the uh, it, it was the it toy that Christmas that mm -hmm. came out. And, and you were almost judged as a as a parent. Uh, about your ability by your ability to actually get your hands on this goddamn toy. Um, and that's what, um, you know, that's what Keto was pitching. And for the longest time it was, you know, it, we were, you know, on the writers in the writers room on the, on the message board, it was Elmo, you know, um, Elmo, Elmo, Elmo. And then of course there comes a moment in time where we uh, had to, you know, decide that it was a different, uh, you know, different name because Lord knows we're not getting the rights to Elmo. Um, <laughs> and I forget, I'll be honest, I forget who was the writer. Um, it may have been Keto. It may have been someone else. I don't want to like give credit to the wrong person. Um, but, uh, um, you know, someone pitched the name Bebo. Um, so Keto, in my mind is, is, is one parent of Bebo. The other parent of Bebo is uh, a woman named Linda Chen. Uh, Linda was one of the concept artists on a show I was working on at the same time called Troll Hunters. And 
uh, I reached out to Linda and said, I need, basically, I need a cute, cuddly toy. Um, and she designed Bebo. Um, and that's how, that's how Bebo was born. Um, and so I, yes, am I thrilled beyond belief about Bebo and do I love <laughs> Bebo? And, um, in fact, I, you know, the only thing I'll take credit for was I, I was the one who was insisting at the end of season three that we bring back Bebo at the end of season three. <laughs> um, and, and like, that was my big contribution to season three was like, Bebo has to be in the finale somehow. Um, and it was the writers who came up with the idea of like, you know, the legends banding together and basically becoming a super Bebo. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I wish I could take credit for Bebo. I love Bebo. I have a Bebo in my home office. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, nothing makes me happier than Bebo. Um, but uh, the credit really belongs to Keto and, and Linda. Uh, well, my, my thanks to them, certainly. Uh, and it's funny, it just it just occurred to me, like I never really thought about this before. It's like interesting that it's two Asian women that are the 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 basically, like I say, the parents of Bebo. Um, that it was not planned out that way. It just worked out that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that uh, that that giant Bebo fight at the end of season three was what solidified Legends as my favorite of the Arrow yeah, shows. So. I, I was I was so, and you know, I by the way, I I wouldn't be. Um, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't be, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it would, it, if I'm singing people's praises, gotta give credit where credit was due. Um, the folks at Encore Visual Effects who did that whole sequence, um, you know, they, they, they deserve a lot of credit for delivering an amazing, amazing epic, uh, you know, demon versus cuddly stuffed toy fight. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, well, Mark, penult penultimate question. Uh, what are you reading right now? Ooh, great question. Um, okay, so, um, well, well, I'll tell you. So I read three categories of things. Um, I read, I try to read novels. Um, I try to read, uh, you know, scripts. Uh, and I obviously read comic books. So on the novel front, I'm reading uh, currently two books. I'm reading John Scalzi's The Last Emperor, which is the last of his uh, interdependency trilogy. I'm also reading um, the Lincoln Highway. And gosh, I'm an idiot because I don't remember the author's name. Um, on the comic book front, uh, I am absolutely loving jason aaron's punisher um whenever that comes out uh, that's always the first thing i read um i love jason aaron's work in general but you know his, his this punisher series just always keeps me guessing always has me surprised um absolutely loves it love it um you know uh and on the script side right now i'm reading um one of the um try to explain this uh Around the time of the Emmys, um, Emmy nominations, they release for your consideration scripts, um, you know, mm -hmm. scripts. Uh, and I'm reading, uh, I believe it's episode, I want to say it's episode 10 of Andor. Um, Andor was one of my favorite shows of the past year. And um, it, uh, whatever the episode number, which I feel like I'm very wrong about, uh, Bo Willman 
uh, wrote it. And it's the one with the amazing Stellan Skarsgård speech. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's for me, it's a lot of fun to read a script, A, by a writer that I respect and admire, but also uh, of, of, of something, a TV show or a movie that I really love. Like if I see a movie that I just absolutely love, I'll I'll seek out the the script um, because I kind of want to see how the sausages got made. You know, I I, I want to see how they wrote certain moments or described certain things. Um, like I'll give you an example, like you know, Barbarian uh, from this past year, I absolutely loved, and I you know sought out that script because I want to sort of see, you know, I want it's it to me reading a script of a TV show or a movie, it's like reading the DNA. And, and by the way, that's also true for comics. Like, um, you know, Alyssa Wong, who writes Dr. Afra, um, mm -hmm. uh, also wrote, uh, is also writing, I should say, uh, the Deadpool um, yeah. uh, series. And I, I reached out to Alyssa and said, can you please send me the script for Deadpool 1? Because I read that comic and was like, I, I was blown away. Um, but I was just like, how did Alyssa do this? Like, what is the actual like physical nuts and bolts writing of the script look like? And Alyssa was very, very kind and, and sent it to me. Um, so uh, I always try to like read comic scripts and read, you know, tele television and movie scripts because that's that's how you learn. It's one of the ways you learn, I should say. Well, uh, Mark, this has been a fantastic time. Final question before we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with everything that you're working on? Oh, great question. Um, well, online, I'm, I'm on Twitter at M. Guggenheim. I'm also on Instagram at Mark Guggenheim. That's Mark with a C. Uh, but the best way, honestly, to just keep up with what I'm doing and what I've got coming up and... If you're curious about like things I'm reading uh, or watching and enjoying, or you know, if you're in the D Writers Guild of America and you're curious about some, you know, schmucky guys' uh, opinions, um, my uh, Substack newsletter, uh, Legal Dispatch, is is a great way of checking out what's going on. Um, that's markguggenheim.substack.com. Excellent, Mark. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. This was a real blast, guys. Great, really great questions. Um, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast, along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to our son Pete and the sticker. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Kat Purcell, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from Comics XF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. 
the loyalist content consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, if Spider-Man can teach the Beyonder to poop, you can pretty much do anything you set your mind to. I believe in you. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.